Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we're going to discuss the latest barrage of visits to Beijing, including the visit by French President Emmanuel Macron, which is exploding social media for his comments on the way back from Beijing. Then we will turn to a conversation with Emily Benson, an expert on international trade and director of the Project on Trade and Technology and senior fellow of the Scholl Chair in International Business here at CSAS to discuss the latest transatlantic developments over the Inflation Reduction Act and the clean energy revolution. We hope you enjoy the show. The first thing I should say is that this is now an all-American podcast, as Dan has become <laughs> an American citizen. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> but maybe now as an American, you can you can roast the French as much as we, we would. So, well, I could do that as a Belgian before. It's actually part true. of that's requirement for citizenship in Belgium. So. So this visit that Emmanuel Macron took to Beijing, it's a state visit. Now, before the visit, it seemed like he sort of did everything right, made it a very European visit. He coordinated with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She came on the trip with him. He called President Biden before the trip. So maybe you could walk us through what happened and, and maybe why it's been so controversial. Absolutely. So they came together, but I the way I want to phrase this is kind of as a tale of two visits because the arrival at the airport, which the press has made a whole thing of, I don't think it's that important, but still, it looked very different. He was received by the Chinese foreign minister. She was received by, I think, the ecology minister. She did not join the state dinner. There was just not as much fanfare over her arrival versus his, which I suppose could make sense since he had a state visit. And I think hers was just coming along for different kinds of meetings. Macron's comments are the ones that are really making waves, though, because first he resurfaced the debate around strategic autonomy, which I feel like we hadn't heard from for a year with the whole Ukraine thing. And maybe it's just making a comeback with this with this visit. He raised some concerns, I think, in both Washington and parts of Brussels and elsewhere in Europe around some of the closeness that appeared in the visit, some of the joint statement segments that focus on the economy, on cultural relationship, really is about deepening some of these ties and in ensuring there's fair market access, which when you talk about China, that, that is hard to know what that means exactly. Whereas von der Leyen was coming into this much more, I don't want to say aggressive, but let's say it was a more blunt approach. She has also used more blunt language in the days coming up to the visit. She gave a big speech. She did. Laying out kind of her view of, of China, yep. which was, I think, hit the right notes from at least an American mm -hmm. perspective of oh, absolutely. engagement slash hawkishness. And I would say that is the key difference between how the two leaders approached their visits to Beijing, which was from the von der Leyen side. It was a lot less coaxing and getting turning things into a positive spin and more saying, well, if we don't see this happening, we think it will impact the EU-China relationship. Whereas Macron seems to approach it as, well, we still need a lot of dialogue, which is you know, discourse he had about Russia before. We need a lot of dialogue. We need to encourage China to support us with Ukraine to have a united framework. So this is the big difference I see between the two. What did you think about the visit? So, look, I think 
Anytime Emmanuel Macron does an interview, it oftentimes makes huge news and he becomes the the dominating thing that everyone's talking about. The press, therefore, love him (laughs) and love to cover everything he says because they know that he is a newsmaker. And we go back to him saying that NATO was brain dead, which is sort of a reaction to both Donald Trump, but also actions that Turkey was taking. And he was like, what is happening at NATO? This organization is brain dead because there was sort of no coordination. In some ways, he had a point, but then his comment is sort of over the top. the way he and says then, it, right? Yeah, and then sort of pushes in a, in a new direction. He got in a fight with AKK, the former defense minister of, of Germany, in the aftermath of Biden's election, talking about strategic autonomy. He, you know, this is sort of a thing that he does. And I think what's interesting about it, what I would say, is number one is both, <laughs> I sort of find this contradiction of the level of attention that he gets when he does these sort of interviews, the reaction from especially, you know, Europeans on social media is he's not the president of Europe, but yet we're treating what he says as if he were the president of Europe. There's this like sort of contradiction on, the, you know, I sort of view Emmanuel Crohn as having this aspirational vision. Oftentimes what he's, his, the rhetoric really outmatches reality. Thank you. So that's number one. I think number two, I think some of the comments about Europe being a third force, Europe sort of being a third block and sort of being independent of the United States, I think, especially at this moment where Europe has really been dependent on the U.S. for its security, it's a little bit bizarre, especially after this last year, to sort of bring that back up. And I think some of his comments were actually slightly more nuanced. It's not they were misreported, but that the longer paragraph version, it's a more like this is something we need to strive for as opposed to just being we need to be sort of independent of America. But that, I think, fed into this view that he was sort of taking an independent line when it came to China, especially the fawning reception that he received that clearly played to him and also probably I think probably played pretty well in France, especially a good opportunity for him to leave France, given all the turmoil and to head over to to Beijing and get that reception and then to show that he's independent of America plays well domestically. But my overarching take is I think there's actually a real positive here that I think everyone is missing. And I'm not saying that this is a coordinated uh, a diplomatic approach between sort of the United States and, and Macron. And, you know, I, I've worked in the State Department. We don't really have an ability to play five-dimensional chess here. But look, if you look at this from a European perspective, I would say the thing that you're most concerned about, about what China does over the next year, is not whether it invades ta- Taiwan. In fact, you probably think the United States sort of nervousness of this has really gotten blown out of proportion, something you said. The thing you're really nervous about is whether China is going to provide arms to Russia. Now, I think what was probably made very clear to Xi Jinping is that if he does provide arms to Russia and therefore is supporting an attack on European security, the Europeans would react very negatively to that. I think that's probably von der Leyen, I think, made that message uh, pretty clear. That was in her speech. Now, she wasn't sort of given the same sort of treatment. But my guess is Emmanuel Macron had also made those points before the visit, I think, made them when he was there. And one of the reasons why China would not provide arms to Russia, despite Russia likely begging China to do so, is because China has this view that it can wedge, you know, Europe and the United States. 
And if China was thinking that might be possible before the visit, they're definitely thinking it's potentially possible after the visit because Macron is saying, you know, they look at the speeches, all the rhetoric, their American reaction and say, oh, well, we had this European leader come over. It caused tension. Maybe we can do business with the Europeans. And I think that will prevent China, hopefully, from providing arms to Russia. Now, whether that's sort of a part of any sort of coordinated diplomatic strategy, I don't know. The thing I would say, finally, as I've been going on, is that I'm not worried about China being able to wedge the U.S. and Europe, in part because, number one, France isn't Europe. Europe is far more complicated. Number two, I've met with a lot of French government officials that have actually a very hawkish view. And Macron himself has offered a, a pretty hawkish view on China. In fact, probably more so than, than Germany oftentimes. Sure. And it's also the joint statement talks about reaffirming commitment to peace in Ukraine and preventing any action that inflames tensions. So there's that, even though it could be considered a little bit vague. But at the same time, all the things the economic commitments that are in the statement don't jive, in my mind, don't jive that well with a lot of the EU efforts we're seeing on autonomy for clean tech, materials, chips, all of this, which he himself, Macron himself, has touted in another interview he gave to Les Echos this weekend. I agree with you that some of it is a little bit overblown. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in there about cultural cooperation that I think is positive, to be honest. But there's a couple things that I do understand people reacting to, including, for example, Senator Rubio, who talked about, okay, when Macron said we shouldn't get caught up in crises that are not ours, that's a pretty strong statement at a moment where we're all having conversations about reinforcing alliances. We are welcoming a 31st NATO member. What if the U.S. took an approach like this? At a time where in Washington, in Congress, you have voices who do this. And I'm not saying Macron should take into account domestic U.S. politics when he makes comments like this, but surely he must know what that's going to sound like here. Indeed. And I think he knows what that sounds like in Beijing. I would say there's, there's one part of this that I'm somewhat sympathetic to Macron is that our discussion of Taiwan feels like it has moved at warp speed from China's being really serious about potentially invading Taiwan, and I think that's a really smart insight, to it's going to happen in five years, to suddenly military officials saying it's going to happen in two years. The fact is, no one knows, and we are having kind of a typical Washington discussion where where should resources go, what's the priority, and there's different polls in that debate. Some say we can't prioritize Ukraine, we have to prioritize Taiwan, but Macron's comments sort of feed into our own debate here in Washington about the threat posed by China to Taiwan, the threat posed by China to the Indo-Pacific. And that is the kind of pacing threat of not just the Pentagon, but now of Washington. And so Macron sort of distancing himself, I think is interesting. On the other hand, it's not as if Washington wargaming is dependent on the French Navy showing up. And I think when we think about how Europe, how the Europe has reacted to this war and where the balance of power shifted, oftentimes we talk about, well, you know, it's the, the eastern states like Poland and the Baltics have really emerged. I think that's true. But I also think it's really Brussels has kind of stepped up as a focal point. That's where European foreign policy is really hatched and worked out and, and where, you know, that's where everyone comes to agreement. And so France represents one part of the equation there. Where I think this is really negative for him and for France and, and potentially for the EU is because it creates this internal division within Europe about where their future is. It creates this distrust of France, which is you can feel it everywhere you go in every capital in Europe. 
which then means to have the most pro-EU, quote-unquote, country and the most distrusted is not helpful. And what I would say is oftentimes I don't actually think France is the most pro-EU country. What happens is France claims to be pro-EU, wants to create a third block, but actually that third block, you know, they really want power vested in Paris. And then when power is moving to Brussels, France gets really nervous and sort of pulls back. And so they're pro-EU to a point and then pull back. This is, you know, another saga in the Macron story. We're talking about uh, France and foreign policy as opposed to, you know, French protests and riots and other things. But we're talking about France. And I think in some ways that's that's what he was looking for. There are times where he really seems to believe he speaks for Europe. But he went on this trip with the president of the commission. So the contrast here should be clear. And in a way, I feel like she, von der Leyen really was speaking like the strategic power in her approach, it was a lot more calculated in, in considering leverage points in the relationship versus maybe his approach was a little more uh, a little more friendly. I will say on the Taiwan piece, from an external point of view, someone listening to this, I, th I think it could be fair to also say, okay, let's pause. Does the alliance extend to the Indo-Pacific? In this case, I think we're so steep in it here in D.C. that it's hard to take a step back and think, okay, well, that's a fair question. Yeah. Let's talk about this. I know successive summits have talked about it, but it's important well, it's to an, keep discussing. It's sort of a very difficult question to discuss because, you know, will the United States intervene in a security crisis involving Taiwan? President Biden thinks so, but the White House walks that back. We don't call Taiwan a country because we don't recognize it as such. And we're going to come to the security defense of Taiwan when we don't even call it a country. There's been a lot of movement in the political debate here in Washington that hasn't really discussed whether or not what the United States would or would not do in that crisis. You know, we have no security commitment to Ukraine and haven't intervened. And that has been interpreted by some in the Indo-Pacific as, see, you know, the United States is deterred by a nuclear weapon state. And in some ways, I would say, yeah. And a lot of the conversation about Taiwan exists without kind of considering the kind of nuclear dimension of this, which is very real. So I think what was so typical about Macron's comments is he found a way to insert himself in all these kind of internal debates and discussions and hit everyone's buttons, you know, in every country in Europe and in the end here in Washington, really quite skillful in, in that sense. I think just to maybe wrap up, I think the end result of Macron's visit is probably to create a lot of confusion within Beijing about where Europe stands on China and whether actually Europe could be a partner. And I think their sidelining of von der Leyen is probably a taste for what we'll see in the future, where Beijing will continue to try to work with individual countries within Europe to develop spoilers that can block concerted EU action. And I think that's something Europe has to be on guard for. Yep. And I think that'll be a great conversation we're having, what, in two weeks with Jude Blanchett, talk about China and Europe. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. But why don't we move forward and talk about the celebration that we all had last week for Finland's accession to NATO, which was kind of a sea change in the last, I would say, year. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that coming. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. What do you see as the most historic element, the most important part of Finland joining this alliance? It's a really big deal. It's a clear acknowledgement and recognition and highlight that Putin made a disastrous decision in invading Ukraine. And he turned a country that had been neutral to becoming now part of NATO, which the Kremlin clearly is concerned about and fears. 
And I think it's really important also for the future of European security, because now having Finland and then hopefully Sweden soon all in the NATO alliance means that there can be a lot better planning and cooperation. We're already seeing the Nordic countries begin to work together when it comes to their air forces. And if you could take all the Nordic air forces together, they have more than 200 fourth and fifth gen fighter jets. That's that's that's, you know, superpower like. So this, I think when we think about European defense and European security and the cacophonous nature of it, well, that was contributed to by the fact that you had this kind of blind spot in both Finland and Sweden not being in a NATO alliance. And if they were under attack by Russia or Russia were to take a gray zone operation against them, it was really unclear what would actually happen. Now, there's sort of a presumption that countries would come to their defense. But now with NATO alliance, with the ironclad Article 5 security commitment, there's no question. And we know how and we know that impacts Russia's behavior and how how they will now view Finland and hopefully Sweden soon. And this not only extends NATO's reach on the eastern flank, it's also massively increasing capacities when it comes to Arctic power production, right? Yeah. The Finnish military is is exceptional. They you know, have invested a lot. Their forces are ready. This is not bringing in a military that is just not up to snuff. This is a military that will strengthen the alliance. And same same for Sweden as well. Maybe not quite at the level of, of Finland in terms of spending, but Sweden's a bigger country and they will bring a lot to the alliance and really turns the Baltic Sea into kind of a NATO lake. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Finland also still has conscription, right? They have military service, yeah. mandatory for everybody turning 18. No, it's a full, full uh, the level of resilience within the Finnish society. I took a ferry from Tallinn to Finland, and I was told that, you know, that, that commercial ferry could also lay mines if, if needed to, because they're a country that was invaded by the Soviet Union, remembers that, as does Norway as well, and really takes security very seriously. Both these countries also from my understanding are we because you talked about gray zone earlier they have worked a lot on total defense or however we're calling it these days of really leveraging all areas of potential defense against any kind of attack including hybrid yeah and i think one of the things to maybe just tie it back to the asia conversation is that with Finland now in NATO, also sort of more embedded in the alliance, that this is where you can start having actually conversation with the Taiwans and with others in Asia about how Finland has you know, prepared itself. And the same with the Baltic states for what would a potential invasion look like, how they would be prepared. And, you know, there's lessons to be learned from these countries as well as, as Ukraine. So we really continue to see tectonic shifts in Europe, primarily these days on the defense and security front, but also areas like fiscal policy and trade. So that's why we're really excited to get into the interview in this next segment with Emily to discuss the latter and then all things green transition with her. We are with Emily Benson, who is the director of the Project on Trade and Technology at CSIS, a brand new project, and senior fellow in the Scholl Chair in International Business. She focuses on trade, investment, tech issues, primarily in the transatlantic context. So she's really been our go-to for all the questions we're about to get into today. So let's start broad. Emily, what do you see these days as the most important, maybe two or three areas of negotiations on trade currently taking place between the United States uh, and the EU? 
That's a great question. And I will caveat my response by saying I'm probably highly biased by what I've been working on, which is very broadly trade and technology, which is a happy coincidence because we have the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, which is heading into a new ministerial round at the end of May, which will take place in Sweden. But if you look at the 10 working groups of the Trade and Technology Council, it really does span a lot of the topics that are crucial, that are at the heart of the transatlantic trade relationship. The topics I've been following the most closely are two. Uh, One is technology regulation, which includes things like the now infamous October 7th uh, export controls on advanced AI chips to China. And that broadly encapsulates a lot of other export control momentum both in and out of the Russia context, uh, gleaning takeaways for a potential change in policy towards China, really thinking through uh, possible convergence between Brussels and Washington and really sharing information in that policy line. The other main policy bucket I've been following this year is all things climate and trade. And there's been so much momentum, um, not only in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think we'll talk a lot about today, but also within the TTC and the GASA, potentially the world's worst trade acronym ever, the Global (laughs) Arrangement on Sustainable Steel and Aluminum. And so if you really zoom out, it's unsurprising at the end of the day, but very ambitious that both parties are so focused on really getting the basics right. And that's geostrategic competition and all things climate. Maybe we'll start with the TTC. How do you sort of see it evolving? It's clear that the Biden administration, I think, has really put some emphasis on the importance of the TTC. It was in the national security strategy. You've seen a lot of positive rhetoric from the White House. But it seems like on the European side, there's some questions about what the utility is of the TTC and some questions about whether it's actually delivering. What do you think right now? That's a great question. And I think our answers probably have differed over the past year. So a lot of us came out of the gate very enthusiastic about the ability of the TTC to bring the parties closer together. And this is sort of a contrarian belief at this point, but I really do think it has succeeded so far in uh, putting bilateral staff together and facilitating a lot of bilateral dialogues that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. And that's really the metric that we have to use looking backwards. We have to use the negative example. Would all of this have materialized in the absence of the TTC? And I think the clear standalone there is really the export control and sanctions response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It has been tremendously successful in facilitating a quick turnaround on that. And I don't think that that's something that gets enough attention still. You know, we have very short attention spans these days, but it's a momentous outcome that we need to celebrate. And I think on a couple of other areas as well, if you're looking at the ambition that's uh, included in Working Group 2 on climate and clean tech standards, the bar is very high. And so it's not necessarily surprising that we haven't seen all of it concluded. We're not finished. These are issues that have spanned multiple decades in the transatlantic context. But I'm optimistic. I think we're making slow and steady progress. A lot of it probably isn't visible all of the time, but it's the train that's moving and we should rally behind it. Is it that some of the outstanding issues, the 
you know, Airbus Boeing, the steel issues, the trade fights that were happening between the US and EU that predate the TTC that have already been established. It's going to be hard to resolve those. But what the TTC may be good at is maybe preventing those fights from happening in the first place by creating some alignment before each of our two complicated unions has kind of set its policy or set its regulation or set its tariff. Is that a good way to kind of view it? Yeah, I think that's been the goal since day one is really create the policy infrastructure for the future on it's kind of a loaded term, but on emerging issue areas. However, this is all staffed by humans. We're all human and we fall back into old disputes or old tropes that we've abided by in the past. And I think it's just sort of a natural progression to say, well, while we're at it, let's discuss this other thing that's been highly problematic for the last couple of decades. Uh, and this is, again, captured, I think, in the Inflation Reduction Act. We have very different approaches to policies, and that core tension is not necessarily going to change, even if we're looking down the road at future policies. I think one area where there's been surprising convergence has probably been on technology misuse and artificial intelligence. There's very clear alignment about the severity of the problem and the desire to multilateralize a lot of the standards that are being promulgated from within the TTC, whether or not that's um, at the democracy summit that the Biden administration just hosted on export controls and human rights. I think there have been a lot of discussions that have either directly come from the TTC or that are happening kind of on the side of the TTC that will really matter over the long run. First, to pick up the thread on the AI regulation element that you just mentioned, are you seeing alignment on how to approach this regulation versus just we agree that we should regulate one way or another? Because I feel like this is the thing that always comes up between the United States and Europe is Europe from Washington, we think Europe regulates too fast. Are, are you seeing a convergence here that is different from GDPR and previous effort, efforts to regulate tech? Yeah, I think one of the key differences is that there's alignment on the need to build policies in the same direction, which is based on trustworthy artificial intelligence. A lot of the language is very workable, and I think the decision to kick a lot of it up to the OECD will be helpful in the long run. And picking an institution is very difficult. There are a lot of other institutions that would love to house these discussions. I think the one that's most overlooked is the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU in Geneva, which is the most overlooked and so amazing and interesting <laughs> agency. That basically you heard it was, at first. You heard it first, pro-ITU. It was basically founded to regulate the international transfer of packages and mail during the horse and buggy era. And here we are, and they have a lot to say about electronic transfers. But the decision to converge around the OECD, I think, is one policy that probably was not easy to arrive at, but has transpired nonetheless. So there are tough decisions being made, even though not all of the language is maybe as specific as we would like. This is why I love CSIS. You never know. I would wander around the halls and I'd just bump into Emily and she would just nerd out on something. And it's it's fantastic. Now we can do that in podcast form. 
let's maybe go to the elephant in the room or the elephant in transatlantic trade negotiations or discussions, the Inflation Reduction Act, which when it passed last summer, it was seen by many in the climate community here as sort of a miracle. America's taken strong action on climate. There was, of course, Congress kind of got it done through negotiations with Joe Manchin. And there were some provisions that then discriminated against, uh, at least according to the Europeans. But the European reaction in the fall was incredibly outraged. Where are we now? What has the administration done to kind of mollify the European concerns? And do you think they were right to be concerned? It's a good question and obviously a loaded one. And I think the way I've been thinking about the IRA is in the D.C. policymaking community. If you go out for lunch or you run into a colleague or you talk about really anything that's happening anywhere, somehow at some point your conversation will go back to the EV tax credit. It's just an inevitability in the post IRA world. Is that good? And is it a reflection of thoughtful policy thinking? I'm less convinced there. It's really good to go out and talk about all of the issues, whether it's artificial intelligence frameworks or export controls and sanctions. And I think the immediate outcome of the focus on the IRA and EV tax credit is to restrain progress in other areas because a lot of the negotiators have very diverse portfolios. They're having to go out and talk about a lot. And by honing in so specifically on this one tax credit provision, we're really not discussing a lot of the other things that we should be. The EV, so, so it's yeah. sort of a distraction yeah, in that sense, that all the attention paid to this one particular aspect of the IRA has kind of distracted attention from making progress in lots of other areas. Exactly. And if you look at the EV tax credit, the way it's written, the maximum amount of the credit that could be received is $7,500. We've actually already seen some companies inflate their prices so that now they're uh, suspiciously exactly $7,500 more expensive than they were before the tax credit. I'm suspicious that this will have an outsized impact on European producers. The other thing that we see working in trade and international business very frequently is that companies don't usually move their supply chains based on one factor. They will need a lot of factors in order to literally pick up and move something that's highly complex and highly globalized. We have workforce issues. We need to be able to actually build the buildings for the production facilities. There are a lot of different factors that will need to come into play, and the funds haven't yet been deployed. So there's a lot out there to be this angry when we're not exactly sure what the ultimate impact will be. So going back to the Biden administration's response out of European concern that seem very focused on just the EV credits. Have we seen positive movement on addressing some of these concerns? I know there was a provision about, well, countries with which we have a trade agreement, except we do not have a trade agreement with the EU still. So have you seen any positive movement from the administration? I think the administration has gone to great lengths to try and clean up this legislative package that they were handed. And if you look at the way things traditionally go in Washington, it's sort of crickets. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot to deal with. And the White House has really had to contend with a lot of the uh, specifics of the legislation that were embedded in the IRA. So in the wake of the IRA, they pretty much immediately stood up this EU-US task force on the IRA, which is headed by some very senior people, both in Brussels and in Washington. Washington. Uh, they also have announced this new transatlantic initiative on sustainable trade that's part of working group two of the TTC. So a lot of meetings, a lot of committees. 
We also have this new critical minerals deal, which is sort of a big question mark. But the U.S. just concluded one with Japan. So I think that will be more or less the blueprint from which we will build an eventual agreement with the EU. But this is a very long winded way of saying they're doing what they can. Uh, the Some provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act are relatively broad. They provide for a lot of flexibility. This is one of the provisions. It's very specific. It's black letter law that emanates from the legislative branch of the U.S. government, and it tells Treasury what they can do. There's very little wiggle room to make a huge difference that I think would placate at the end of the day the European demands. And a difference if it's too wide that could be pursued in the courts here. Yeah. One of my colleagues uh, put it very succinctly, which is there will be litigation. (laughs) So everyone will be unhappy with some provision the way that it shakes out. Uh, But that's not to say the administration isn't doing absolutely everything they can. What's interesting about this critical minerals deal is that they're pursuing many of these bilateral arrangements with other partners around the world. Um, It's kind of unclear where they fit in to the various branches of government because the Biden administration made a choice coming in not to uh, pursue trade promotion authority, TPA. So they don't have the legislative mechanism that allows them to go out and swiftly conclude deals that are traditional FTAs that have market access concessions or tariff reductions. Because they didn't seek that special authorization, they're very restrained in the type of deal that they can conclude, which would need to be an FTA uh, to satisfy the IRA requirements. So they can't do an FTA because they did not seek congressional approval to do that. But at the same time, Congress is saying, well, you need an FTA uh, to be able to provide Europe with these concessions. And so it sets up sort of an interesting self-imposed friction among the various branches of government. And if they can find a viable workaround, that is policymaking creativity at its finest. (laughs) So, you know, on that, I mean, one of the issues, it seems, at least in the the drafting of the legislation, is that the Senator Manchin has admitted this when he went to Davos, is that there was a belief that, you know, as the legislation's being, you know, I'll just say written at 3 a.m. And, and people are scribbling away, not a recognition that we didn't have a free trade agreement with the European Union. And it would strike me that one of the ways you could solve this is by inking free trade agreement with the EU by pursuing kind of a larger trade cooperation. Of course, the UK has also been pushing for a free trade agreement. You know, the Biden administration or the Obama administration, sorry, was in negotiations over TTIP. So there's just no chance, though, of this administration trying to negotiate any sort of trade agreement that might resolve this because of the trade promotion authority. Is that the base challenge? Yeah, and this is a question that kind of comes up in some of the weeds of what's an FTA. The drafters of the bill failed to capitalize the F, the T, and the A. And so everyone's saying, well, they didn't mean a formal FTA. (laughs) I am trying to teach my daughter capitalization, and this is a great lesson, I think. Well, I'm not sure if that will persuade her, but... (laughs) She might have a legal argument about it. Yeah, there you go. So I think it's come up a lot, what is an FTA? And conveniently, we have this organization called the World Trade Organization, which is sort of like the UN for trade. uh, And they actually have a very good definition. And in order to fulfill the requirement of what would need to be notified to the WTO system, an agreement has to cover substantially all trade. 
You can get into what that means, but it probably would need to include agriculture. And that's really the weeds of what would slow down a negotiation. We want to be able to export mozzarella from the state of Colorado, which happens to have a very large cheese making facility that they call mozzarella. That's anathema to the Europeans. And that's just one tiny example. So you broaden the scope to 27 member states. You have U.S. Yeah, oh, not again. <laughs> exactly. Gruyere, which now Virginia is implicated in that. So you can kind of see how things would get slow very quickly. And so there's no way to just the Biden administration says, OK, let's do a free trade agreement on batteries and other clean energy technologies that we're going to isolate that. That's not possible. You can't sort of figure out some trade agreement legislative uh, arrangement with the EU when it comes to that. They could do a targeted sectoral arrangement, but would it be a free trade agreement? And they don't currently have the congressional authority to go negotiate these things without kicking it back to Congress for approval. And so they've gotten themselves into a little bit of a sticky political situation because they need the consent of the branch that made this rule. And so pretty quickly, I think the answer is um, it's not immediately viable, short of a massive desire from the administration to get back to traditional trade policy, knowing that they would have to pour tremendous sweat equity into getting it through Congress. A year and something, a year and a half before a presidential election. It's the old adage, where there's a will, there's a way. True. So maybe to close out here, I give you a magic wand. What is the one thing you make happen that Americans need to understand about the EU for trade related things? There's a, I just the reason I'm asking this, it feels like there's a lot of misunderstanding in those conversations and vice versa. What do you want Brussels to understand about the way Washington does trade? It's a very broad answer, but I think one thing I've seen in the last decade plus of working in transatlantic affairs is that we tend to overstate the degree to which our policy objectives align. And in so doing, we get a lot of the details wrong. We're kind of talking past each other. And so I think taking the veil off and admitting in some cases, hey, we're approaching this from very different standpoints. We're broadly aligned, but we'll have a very different path of getting there is actually helpful because it kind of clicks on the lens of, oh, now I understand. I think if you go down one more granular level from that, the really fruitful thing right now, I think, is for the Europeans to realize the IRA is not an attempt by the U.S. to hoover up jobs in a geopolitically precarious time for the European Union. Conversely, it's important that Washington realize just how precarious the economic and political situation in Europe is and that this is very bad timing to muck up uh, one of our closest friendships in the entire world. So if we can both admit that and move forward into these policy areas where all the oxygen is really being sucked up by the IRA, that will make a big difference in the transatlantic relationship. Great. Well, Emily, I mean, I have lots of other questions, but I think we're out of time. I think we'll have you back to talk the green steel deal, if that ever comes to fruition, uh, and other economic and trade-related uh, issues that, that royal transatlantic relations uh, far too often. And other obscure agencies that yes. we want to know about. Yes. But with that, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Eurofile. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Eurofile. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more expert analysis on other foreign policy topics, visit csis.org slash podcasts.